Hello, and welcome to Walking with the Tengu, a podcast exploring classic texts for the modern martial artist. With the exception of a few people, most of us likely practice our martial arts as a hobby. Our practice is something extra, in addition to our family, friends, and work. A few get to have those worlds overlap, but for many of us, while it's an important element of our lives, it isn't necessarily the primary and sole focus of life. Have you ever thought about what you are willing to die for? To save yourself, perhaps? I've met committed pacifists who claim that even if someone were going to kill them, they would not raise a finger to stop the killing blow. If you're practicing the martial arts, you're probably already working off the presupposed truth that you and your person are fundamentally worth protecting. What about for others? Who would you be willing to commit acts of violence to save? Your friends or family? Your children? A vulnerable stranger? Who would you be willing to die for? It's easy to make up scenarios that force people into either only one choice or to pose them difficult moral conundrums. An example of this might be one that those in our first responder communities have to face far more often than the average person. It is the question of who do you save and who do you let die? Consider for a moment that there is a house on fire. There is a child at one end of the house and another child at the other end. You can only save one. By the time you save one child, the other will have had too much smoke inhalation and will die. By choosing one child, you condemn the other to death. And if you wait too long to act, they both die. Our police, firefighters, EMTs, nurses, and doctors all have to make decisions like this far more often than you may realize. And then they have to spend the rest of their lives wondering if they made the right decision. If they could have done something, anything, to save someone who died. It is questions like these that have kept me up late at night. And the only solace I can find is that if I had done nothing, more people would have died. We can't save everyone, so we save who we can. When there's a natural disaster and many people are hurt, be it flooding, earthquake, or whatever, the people responding have to decide who among the victims are worth expending effort and resources to save, and who are a lost cause who are going to die anyway. Put another way, if you have limited medical personnel and resources, if you treat everyone equally, some who could have been saved will die and some who were going to die anyway had resources wasted on them that might have saved someone else. This is called triage, and in the end, it is always hard. You focus on saving as many as you can, but those choices mean that others will die. Taking this a step further then, let's imagine we can go into that burning house and get a child out, but in the act of doing so, we condemn ourselves to death. Would we still walk into the burning home, usher the child to safety, and then die ourselves? Or would self-preservation tell you that even for an innocent life, you are not willing to die? In a sense, I'm making this made-up scenario easy on us, 
because I have placed two imaginary innocents in harm's way. It complicates things when the person in danger is a complete stranger or, worse, is someone who may not live up to your standard of moral purity. If you look at people and consider their life worth less than yours, someone you would not raise your hand to save, even if you knew you could do it without danger to yourself. Well, that's one moral conclusion we can certainly come to. Not all people do. Again, first responders regularly expend great effort and place themselves in danger to save people who sometimes not only hate them, but actively seek to harm them. In the end, though, this is a question that only you can truly answer for yourself. You should probably spend some time thinking about why and when you would be willing to commit violence and for what reason you would be willing to die before you find yourself faced with that decision. Today, we look at what Daidoji Yuzan had to say to young samurai in the Budo Shoshinshu about how we should then live and die. One thing that was different between now and the time that Daidoji Yuzan was writing is that he was much closer to a time when the martial arts were considered an occupational necessity for the audience he was writing for. Now, as you probably know, as the Tokugawa era progressed, the bushi class became more like accountants than warriors. That's not to say all of them were like that, but at least in some philosophical sense, there was still the perception in Daidoji's time that the warrior who knew when, why, and how to commit violence was better than the warrior who did not. So for his time, the martial arts were more than a hobby. They were a tool towards the fulfillment of an individual's purpose rather than an end in and of itself. Daidoji asserts that, even if it is peacetime, the goal of the warrior is to live their life in such a way that they seek to do some great deed at least once in their life. He makes an interesting point that, even if we are unable to accomplish it, the effort towards the attempt is what really matters. He says that it's common sense in conflict, and thus for us by extension the martial arts, to be determined when facing violence. To Daidoji, that's the bare minimum. To attempt a great deed is what is important. Even if it fails, it is the one who doesn't even try who is not worthy. He moves on to state that the study of history was important for understanding what was noteworthy in the past. Whether a person was of high or low rank, it was only those who were exceptionally brave or sacrificial that were recorded. He lists some examples. The Koyo Gunkan is a history of the Takeda clan of Kai province, from the birth of Takeda Shingen to the death of his son Katsuyori. A substantial part of it is a treatise on military tactics and administrative affairs. The Shinchokoki is a record of the Oda clan from 1544 to the death of Oda Nobunaga. It is actually considered a reliable historical account of the events described. And then there's the Taikoki. Uh, it's a biography of Toyotomi Hideyoshi, written by Oze Hoan in 1626. If you have even the smallest familiarity with the Warring States period of Japan, these three are, needless to say, very famous. If not, I recommend taking a look at it. As a reminder, Daidoji Yuzan was born in 1639 AD, so these would have been comparatively recent histories for Daidoji's father and grandfather's time. 
He was simply referencing accessible and recent, for his time, histories of conflict where people who had done deeds worth remembering could be read about as examples. In the centuries since, we've had an explosion of access to the writings of many cultures and time periods. This is why we can see movies about places like the Battle of Thermopylae. Even when heavily fictionalized, these stories are told and retold to very different people and cultures because the great deeds done are noteworthy. They amaze and inspire people, far removed from the original events. According to the Budo Shoshinshu, simply dying in battle wasn't enough to be recorded. Those who are remembered, and those who are not, suffered the same pain as they died. Daidoji's point being, if we're going to die anyway, we may as well die doing something great with our death. We now shift gears to consider the opposite of the ideal Yuzon has put forth for us to consider. He describes the person who clings to life such that, when the battle is joined, they use their companions to shield themselves from danger. This is the strategy of the one who values living no matter what, but who will die anyway. A cheap and meaningless death. We see this in many cultures. It actually reminds me of a quote from the Havamal, a collection of old Norse poems. Verse 16 could be translated as, The coward believes he will live forever if he holds back in the battle. But in old age he shall have no peace, though spears have spared his limbs. Here we see, in a culture, centuries prior to Daidoji, on the other side of the world, the same philosophical value placed on dying in a meaningful way contrasted with living in regret. Like in the Norse cultures, even if you live by hiding behind others to an old age, the arrow of unavoidable fate, as Daidoji puts it, will eventually come for you. He states that losing your precious life in this way is a deep humiliation. Consider this for a moment. This may seem backwards thinking in our modern culture, but if you truly consider your life to be something precious, to then spend it in the cause of something deeply meaningful and for the benefit of others is a great and praiseworthy act. What better way to spend your most valuable possession, your life, than to buy something of terrible importance, the lives of others, peace for your people, or to oppose vile oppression? If you hide your life away, cowering behind the others who sacrifice their lives for your safety, your life then is cheap, of little meaning and value to the people of your tribe, whoever that may be. Daidoji repeatedly throughout this section emphasizes both great deeds before both your friends and your enemies. In a way that is admired by both and whose loss brings deep sadness. The point is to be a story, an exemplar, a point of focus for future generations to remember and respect. Most cultures have stories about some great last stand. The aforementioned Battle of Thermopylae with the 300 Spartans is one. The Siege of Masada with Jewish resistance to Roman oppression, another. We can also look to more recent history to find stories of bravery in the face of overwhelming odds. The Battle of Stalingrad, specifically the siege of Pavlov's house, that very likely could have been the defining moment that prevented the Nazi takeover of the Soviet Union. The choices of 30 men wrote a very different history for us. 
Consider also the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising of 1943 in Poland. Some of these are not what we would consider victories, but the sacrifice, the resistance to overwhelming death and destruction, to not go quietly, but instead to go out with great deeds, is why these stories are remembered and retold. Daidoji Yuzong closes with an interesting comment here, that we should apply ourselves deeply to these thoughts, both in the morning and evening when we train so that we might physically become manifestations of our philosophy. I usually close with a rewording of the Roman philosopher Epictetus's admonition to not just talk about your philosophy, but like your martial art, live it. However, I feel like Daidoji has already said this to us, so I'll forego it in this episode. And that's all for today. Please help the podcast out by sharing and telling people about it. The best way you can help us is just by letting people know that it's out there and what it's got you thinking about. Thank you for listening and talk to you again soon.